Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here in our New York studio with our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And it's just us. Yeah, well, we braved the elements. Yeah, it was The Revenant out there. I think we both slept in a horse carcass last night just to make sure that we could get into the office to record. Mm-hmm. Mike Hogan is in Los Angeles, as is Joanna Robinson. Joanna's at TCA, where she's meeting every TV exec in the universe. Uh, Mike is out there getting ready for the Golden Globes, I think. Yeah, he's nominated in several categories. Yes, exactly. Yeah. getting fitted for dresses. Yeah, yeah. he like... actually played Meryl Streep in the post. Yeah. Oh, God, that, <laughs> he wears a good caftan. <laughs> he does indeed. So you and I are holding down the fort, uh, mm-hmm. but we have a lot to talk about. It's our first episode we're recording in the new year. Uh, last night, we were both at the New York Film Critics Circle Awards. Uh, so we're going to talk about that, get into the Golden Globes a little bit. And then later, we'll be sharing an interview I did with Dee Reese, who is the director and writer of Mudbound, talking about her work on that film. Uh, but first, we were up late last night at Tau downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, this is your second year going as a member. I think someone at some point said something to the equivalent of, this, why is this night different from all other nights? Like, it, there definitely is a different vibe about this awards show. Like, what is it? Because I feel like it's more fun than most. What, what is it that makes it that way? Well, I think it's a group of people who don't always get to celebrate themselves because <laughs> they're often the antagonists in a sort of Hollywood the, story. The villain in Birdman. Yeah, right. And so here it's like, well, no, we actually promise we do like things. And like, here's us kind of like acknowledging that. So it's nice that like the sort of, you know, gnarled trolls of film criticism can <laughs> put on a suit or a, a nice dress or a pants suit or whatever the case is. And, everyone and looked very good. Everyone looked great. Stephanie Zakarik in particular, did you see her? Oh, the, this is like the talk of the night. She had on this like excellent leopard, right? Yeah, it looks leopard print jacket. She's the critic for time. She looked great. Yeah, so it's fun. And, you, you know, we all get we all get to bring like three guests and so other media people come and it's it's just like an it's a nice evening that uh you know happens right after the holiday so it's something to look forward to in kind of the bleakest you know part of the year before an imminent snowstorm right exactly so yeah it's fun and also because the critic circle is the oldest such group in the country it's 80 something years old it has a certain prestige to it and so a lot of the people not everyone but most of the people who won actually show up and not only they show up but they get introduced usually by the director of their film or the star of their film or what, or a friend who's a celebrity. Michael B. Jordan, for example, was there introducing Rachel, Rachel Morrison, Morrison. Who won. Yeah, the cinematographer from yeah. Mudbound. And she, I didn't realize she shot Black Panther, which is a, a massive movie, which he's in. So that's yeah. a, a cool And a female DP on a Marvel movie. Yeah, Pretty exactly. cool. I know. Um, so yeah, and, but you've, you'd been to it before. Yeah, so I'd been twice before. I had been as a guest of Jordan Hoffman, who's a friend of ours, who last night brought his parents, which uh, they, seem really to be having, they seem to be having a great time. And I think it's great because it's not televised and they also have the structure of everyone in so you get a great speech from the presenter, like you have Edward Norton there to speak for Willem Dafoe, and you have Greta Gerwig giving this really heartfelt introduction to Sir Ronan, and then the winners themselves give these great speeches because they know they're going to win. They're not nervous. They have time to prepare. They can like have room to kind of spin out a long story. I mean, the speech that everyone was talking about this morning is Tiffany Haddish, who won the Best Supporting Actress Prize. She talked for 18 minutes, uh, which is definitely the longest speech I've ever seen there. It might be the longest in history. But she's a comedian. I mean, she's been doing stand-up, she, I think she said since she was 15. Like, she knew how to work the room. She had everyone in the palm of her hand she told a story of a joke that got cut out of girl's trip because it was too like legally yeah. worrisome uh, and you're just never going to see that on the golden globes like no. i feel kind of bad for the people who go there and then have to get like timothy chalmay if he wins a golden globe he's not going to get to give a speech shouting out like what everyone was doing in 2008 when he saw the dark knight and was inspired to act by heath ledger like that's a such a great insight into these actors which is such a valuable thing for i think critics and anyone to get to go and see them kind of within a less strict award season environment. Yeah, and there's a funny vibe about it with the Critics Group Awards show is that like, these are possibly oppositional entities, right? Actors and critics. And so I think a lot of the people who win, not just the actors, directors, writers too, they are, are sort of like, 
okay, thanks for having me here. I'm glad that you like me right now. Like, I don't know if this is going to be true next year. And I'll never or read whatever. a review. So right. many of them said yeah. that. But like, so there's this kind of wariness that like makes people funny mm-hmm. in a way, like, mm-hmm. you know, and makes them kind of reveal something about themselves. So I, I think it's great. And, and yeah, and Haddish obviously like, she had like site specific material. She'd like, there's all like a projection behind her that she kind of riffed on for a yeah. while. And, and I think that you're right. The most important aspect of it is that they know they're going to win. Yeah. It's just like, it's celebratory. It's not nerve wracking. Yeah. I mean, you can't beat the suspense of live television. Like I think we all live for watching the Oscars and mm-hmm. get like Eddie Murphy's reaction shot when he loses. But yeah, it's definitely kinder to bring someone to something and have them know that they're going to win. Yeah. Cause you know, they're going to show up. They can imagine it'd be a lot harder to get everyone to show up in a snowstorm if they might go home without winning. Yeah. Um, so what is you like, so the thing that I kept observing in terms of, you know, everyone's sitting down throughout most of the night, but you get to observe people in the element. And uh, Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer were kind of like just walking around as this duo the entire time. They're both wearing amazing suits. Mm-hmm. They seem to get along pretty well. Like, I can't imagine how they don't hate each other by now because they've been on the promo circuit for over a year. But everyone kind of wanted to get their attention. They were kind of the shining beacons in it. I think Tiffany Haddish was another one. Anything you notice in terms of who's getting the attention and the heat around them? I think that. You know, obviously Tiffany Haddish was big, but like, you know, now that I've you know been on this sort of uh, an observer on the circuit with them for this many months, just any time that Chalamet and Army Hammer show up, it's just like everyone turns toward them and sort of like whispery and like they just have this kind of buoyant charm, you know, just in, in, in sort of physical presence. Like I didn't talk to them last night, but they just they kind of command a room. Yeah. They're really good at talking to people. Yeah. And Army Hammer is gigantic, everyone knows. Timothy Chalamet is also really tall. Like, it's hard to tell because you see him sitting next to Army he's Hammer. He's just skinnier. Yeah, he's skinnier yeah. and yeah. shorter, but like, they're both large and you see them and you, like, their presence is And they is look like fucking movie stars. <laughs> I mean, frankly, you know. You know who looked like a fucking movie star who I didn't realize was going to be there was Betty Gabriel, who is in Get Out. Oh my God. She, she looked, looked incredible. Yeah. yeah. And I think you forget because she's very deglammed in the movie, obviously, and you just forget how striking she is. She had on this amazing dress. Dee Reese, the director of Mudbound, who's going to be on the show later had this great like coat on there's a lot of good fashion that goes on to these things because it's not quite it's not red carpet no one has to wear a ball gown and so, it's New York and everyone yeah, uh, wants to look kind of cool mm-hmm. Greta Gerwig had like a I don't know if it was a suit or a dress but it was like very like menswearish white dress on um, no people looked great people gave great speeches Greta Gerwig was the only one who she was the la- gave the last speech of the night because she won the best picture prize and she was like I read critics I read all the reviews I always have <laughs> and it was like way to work the room Greta yeah and speaking about Greta and Timothy in particular, they're doing an awards campaign that is subtle and charming, mm-hmm. which is really hard to do. Mm-hmm. Saoirse Ronan, too, and I think she's done this yeah. several times. Like her yeah. Brooklyn well, she's an campaign. old pro at this point. Yeah, but yeah. she's always been really good at like, being there all the time, being gracious, but never like pushing over the point. And it's never the Taylor Swift thing of like, oh my god, I can't believe I won. And it's like, Saoirse knows that she's won a bunch of awards already, has been nominated for a bunch of awards already. And so she, she but she, she manages a certain you know, humility or whatever you want to call it, that feels entirely authentic mm-hmm. and and I think is important going forward. You know, I was speaking with a friend last week and he was like, you know, I kind of think that, that Chalamet is going to win mm-hmm. at the Oscars. And the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what, I think that could be true. And part of that is because he's so good in these rooms yeah. and he and he's going to a lot of them, but it doesn't seem overly hungry. It's, you know, it seems natural. I still believe strongly in the uh, Academy bias against young men. It's been so strong for so long. Like he would be, like I've said this on the show before, like the third youngest ever nominee as in Best, yeah. best Actor. Like yeah. the youngest winner, I think was Adrian Brody. He was 29. He's 22. He would be extremely young as a Best yeah. Actor oh, winner. like crazy. Yeah. And I still think that the Academy is still more male than female and still tends to like young women, which is why Saoirse 
is all of a sudden the front runner, which is fascinating. Like her winning Best Actress for a role like Lady Bird would be a real diversion from what you normally see in that category. Like there's not like a lot of screaming and crying. There's no like you know she dyed her hair pink, but there's not like a big physical transformation. It's a much more like subtle performance than it feels like usually gets rewarded there, which is exciting. Well, but Katie, come on, it's a period piece. I know. I mean, <laughs> period listen, pieces are big at the. We audience. can flash ourselves back to 2002, <laughs> and, and our decrepit bones tell us how long ago that was. Yeah. So I guess that's a good time to start talking about the Golden Globes since that's the next big awards yeah. show. Obviously a really different event from the New York Film Critics Circle Awards. The Golden Globes is a critics group, sort of. It's the Hollywood Journalists. Forum Press. Yeah. 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 So they're not industry voters, which I think is an important distinction. But also the Golden Globes are known to just be kind of bananas. And I feel like as much as there's good momentum for a lot of these people that like weird things could start to happen. I kind of tend to think of them as like benign Bond villains. <laughs> like it's really shadowy who they are they're all they all have accents. Yeah, yeah exactly but like they're not actually doing any harm they're just giving out weird awards so our predictions for all the golden globes are up on vanityfair.com right yes. now we kind of split them up so I'm, I'm like looking for the first time and seeing i don't know if you did the, the best picture drama i did so you predicted shape of water yeah look let's be upfront about this when i write these prediction posts I am consulting Gold Derby. I am looking at what, you know, and, and, and Shape of Water was, was, was at the top of a lot of the, the, the kind of experts lists. The Post was at the top of a lot of others. You know, Dunkirk was there, certainly. But I was just thinking about it, like, that the Golden Globes always do something weird or mm-hmm. unexpected. And I feel like this is where, in this very crowded and there's no real front runner kind of year, yeah. this is where I think Shape of Water could get something it's not going to get at the Oscars. I think that movie's Oscar chances faded actually pretty quickly in December. But I think that maybe, you know, it got a ton of nominations at Golden Globes. So I think that maybe this is where it could do it. And, you know, I was thinking back to 10 years ago when Atonement won instead of No Country for Old Men, which went on to win the Oscar. And I just feel like The Shape of Water, even though... Atonement has a Dunkirk scene, and there's a movie called Dunkirk nominated against Shape of Water. <laughs> I just feel like you know Shape of Water is a romance from from a, from a non-American director. It's about that, crossing boundaries and like accepting each other. I just feel like there's something there. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm looking knows? at this list. I feel like literally any of them could win. Like, I don't think you can write off Dunkirk, The Post, Call Me by Your Name, or Three Billboards at this point. Honestly, the one I would write off is Call Me by Your Name. That seems like the one that would be the furthest down, but it's got such an, a huge amount of acclaim. It's got so much attention on it. It's got these charming guys who we keep talking about. And the Golden Globes, like you said, they get weird. Like it, it feels. I think I don't have any money writing on this. I don't think I could confidently do a Golden Globes pool at all. No, I mean I am forever wrong about this stuff. <laughs> it, I think it's easier with other categories. Like so, what? Did, which 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 ones did did you? So I did actress in a drama, and okay. I uh, I feel like it's Meryl Streep with a bullet. Like I know I think on Gold Derby there were a lot of people saying Sally Hawkins could win, which, as you pointed out, like Shape of Water seems like something that they would appeal to them. But I mean, The Post is making a lot of money in limited release. It's kind of peaking at this time. Where everyone wants to talk about it. Trump is still tweeting about the media like it's got that relevance. This is why they rushed to make the movie in the first place. And last year, Meryl Streep gave a speech that Trump tweeted about. Like she gave this incredible speech and everyone wants to see her up on stage again. So why not give her an award for that? And And she's she's, great in the post. Yeah. And she's really good in it. Um, You know, and if she wears the caftan costume. Oh my God. Well, a black caftan. You know, everyone, everyone's going to be wearing black. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Should we talk about that? About what the, what the (laughs) vibe of this entire thing is going to be like? Yeah. So, a bunch of actresses and I guess actors too. Yeah, I don't really understand how that's because they're work. always wearing they black. Are, anyway. wearing black. Uh, are going to wear black uh, as a show of solidarity in the wake of all these sexual harassment and sexual assault things that have obviously rocked the industry to its core. Which I think is, you know, as empty gestures go. Sure, like <laughs> you know, it will be striking though. I mean, this is like 
Well, it's just, and who's going to be the idiot who doesn't do it? Oh my God. Well, the thing is, we're going to see Juliana Rancic like trying to like pivot herself into talking about sexual harassment in every possible, it's going to be wild. Yeah. And the Golden Globes is the most frivolous of the award shows and the red carpet is the most frivolous part of it. And they're turning it into this moment of like, I mean, I don't know if it's going to be any fun, but I think it's going to be really interesting. We had a meeting yesterday where we were planning out like our, all our coverage. And, and one of the things that, that uh, we, we, we spoke about was like, we should, we all should kind of be watching with an eye toward like, what is this like? Like, what are these yeah. what are these award shows like right now? Because not only, you know, there's obviously the, you know, political dimensions beyond this particular issue, but there is this particular issue looming so large yeah. over everything. It'll be a room where just last year, a lot of several people who are now pariahs of the industry were, you know, they are clinging champagne with everyone else. So so I think that it might be a good sample of what this kind of reckoning is going to look like in a public sense, or they might just pretend it doesn't exist and just you know, not really comment on the black dresses and just kind of go from there. I don't think that's going to happen. I think but... with Seth Meyers as a host, you're going to wind up being able to be really pointed anyway, which was, you know, I think he was hired before all of this happened. So I mean, it would be amazing if we had Amy Poehler and Tina Fey hosting I again. I know. It's so, it's so like cliche to say, but they're so good at it that I just wish that they... Well, it could be Ricky Gervais. I still rewatch their their opening oh, monologues. Yeah. The one with the Catherine Bigelow, James Cameron joke. Yeah. is the, t- the torture <laughs> joke is so fucking good. But yeah. No, I think Miles, not, Myers will be good. I think he'll strike the right tone. And, you know, and I think that someone like Meryl Streep winning, there's a speech, you know. Yeah. But we'll see. Um, so going further down the line, we think Gary Oldman's going to win, which yeah. I think is probably true. I think it's probably true. Lady Bird, best comedy, sure. I think Get Out could win Best Comedy. I mean, it's not a comedy, which is the problem. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I, I think that the rest of this award season, I was speaking with somebody about this last night, um, is going to be sort of a heartbreaker because it's uh, there are a lot of categories where it could go to Lady Bird or it could go to Get Out. Yeah. Two movies that people love that both have a certain... certain not underdog exactly, but you know, like it's, neither it's, of them is a like. I mean, nothing this year is like a likely Oscar win right. movie, which is what makes it so fun. But yeah, they're going to be competing against each other in like the screenplay category, director, and, picture. If, I mean, if yeah. if Greta Gerwig and Jordan Peele both get director nominations like that, I will jump over the moon. I'd be yeah. thrilled about that alone, and then Christopher Nolan can win, and that's fine with me. <laughs> I'm still kind of pulling for Christopher Nolan despite everything. Well, for I me, mean, for Christ's sake, it's like I know, you know. he's give the man his nomination. Uh, yeah, so I did uh, Best Actress in a Comedy, and I went with Sir Ronan, but I feel like Margot Robbie could like swing in there at the right moment and take it away. Mm. It seems possible to me. I mean, they're both foreign, so if that's a benefit with the Hollywood Foreign Press. Best Actor in a Comedy is such a crazy category. But you, we went with Franco yeah. for The Disaster Artist. That seems right to me. And you know what? He's great in it. Yeah. Like, oh, he's, he's so great really in The Disaster good in Artist. It. And, and, and that movie, I almost think, kind of broke a little too late to have more of, of presence in, in the awards conversation. Mm. But I think it is the one aspect of it that's, that's holding on is Franco's performance. Yeah. I think it could have been nominated elsewhere yeah. had it had a little more time to yeah. gestate. But as is, I think that Franco could get an Oscar nomination for it. Definitely. Um, and so him winning it uh, this weekend at the Globes would be a good sign. I think that would yeah. kind of solidify it for him. The thing that I keep saying is of all the acting categories that feel really fuzzy, actor to me seems pretty solidly... Tom Hanks, Daniel Day-Lewis, Gary Oldman, James Franco, and Timothy Chalamet. Like, that feels like what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that Daniel Kaluuya is out of that. And I could be wrong, and he could jump in there. Like, I think... I think to get out, it's going to get its attention elsewhere. Yeah. But I hate that that's how it works. Yeah. 
just to go into supporting actor real oh, quick, right. I feel like Willem Dafoe is the, the one front runner we have this year, but I'm also yeah. kind of bracing for like Christopher Plummer to win this just for like the stunt aspect of it. You know, when, like remember when Aaron Taylor Johnson won two years ago and we I all sure flipped, do. was it last year? Oh God, it was just it was last, last year. year yeah. And we, I think I heard you scream in the room. For Nocturnal Animals. <laughs> well, because that movie's horrible and it was just so <laughs> random and there were like other, much better nominees. But um, yeah, I think Dafoe is as much of a front, as a sure thing as we have right now, yeah. like you said. That said, the the Globes are crazy. Globes are I'm crazy. hoping that if they do, if they go crazy, I'm hoping they go not Christopher Plummer, who's who's good in all the money in this world. Um, but I would love a, a positive crazy, which would be giving it to Army Hammer. Oh my god, that'd be so exciting because he's kind of Aaron Taylor Johnson esque. Yeah, he's yeah, a young and who, handsome. Who's been you know not taken seriously. Yeah, you know as an actor really. Um, so I don't know. I oh mean, it could, could happen. Now you got my hopes up. <laughs> Just to wrap up the movies, I did the supporting actress and I predicted Allison Janney, but it really feels like a, a walk between her and Laurie Metcalf. Like either of them could take it. Yes, I agree with you. Except I, I had a conversation with with a friend recently where he turned me onto the idea that he th- he thinks that Hong Chao is going to win everything. <laughs> Which you know, uh, we talked about it already a couple weeks ago. Like. I I've sort of come back around on on that performance. She's good in that. She's I really do not good like in the it. Movie at all? No, I don't like the good. movie and I don't like the role, but I think she's really good in it. And yeah. she likes the role, so like, let's. I, I'm kind of inclined to believe her. Anyway, I I think that we shouldn't count her out. Downsizing has made 19 million dollars, which is more than I thought. I mean, it's in really look wide at its release. budget though. Yeah, no, it costs way too much. But I just the, the, there are people seeing it to an extent that I wasn't totally expecting. I mean the fact that yeah I mean she 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 is so far getting the nominations that way back at Venice before the whole backlash happened yeah. people were assuming she would get so the narrative actually hasn't changed for her no since then essentially but so many other people i mean like mary j blige is emergent and like and then you have Laurie metcalf and Alison Janney, these actresses who have been like tv veterans forever Looking at that five nominated, so it's Mary J. Blige for Mudbound, Hong Chow for Downsizing, Janney for Tanya, Metcalf for Lady Bird, and Octavia Spencer for Shape of Water. Is that the five that goes to the Oscars? I think you could get Holly Hunter in there, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but that would be about it. That yeah. would be a third nomination for Octavia Spencer in very in a very short time, less than yeah. a decade. Yeah. I mean, I guess she started with a win. And then uh, what was her second nomination for? Uh, for last year for um, Hidden Figures. Oh, right. Right, right, yeah. right. I forgot she was the one nominee from that movie. I mean, it should have been Taraji, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I could see that five going, but yeah, I think you're right that I think that Octavia Spencer is the swing there. So mm-hmm. may, maybe Holly Hunter gets in there instead. Yeah, because I think The Shape of Water has a lot of good things going for it. Octavia Spencer is very good in it, but I, she's but the not role the standout yeah, part of it by isn't any means. There. Yeah, I mean, it's got like that movie has a ton of supporting players and then Sally Hawkins and all the supporting players. I mean, Richard Jenkins, I think, stands a pretty good chance at a nomination as well. But yeah, uh, it's a large supporting cast, but not a lot of room to break out of it. I mean, that seems if we're going to go with Shape of Water's Best Picture winner like that seems well right del toro is i mean a very different filmmaker than christopher nolan but similar in that he's beloved mm-hmm. and yet doesn't always get the awards attention that people think he's owed so in the same in a similar way i yeah. feel like he could he could i mean you know he and yeah nolan. and it seems like if christopher nolan christopher nolan could still win his oscar and not win the golden globe here like yeah. i don't i don't sense that there's any like he's overdue for a golden globe narrative that's yeah. gonna propel him along here yeah. Um, and then there's also screenplay, which I did, and I put billboards, uh, three billboards for Martin McDonough. Ooh, that's a because tough I f- category. I feel like that movie, I would be surprised if it went unrewarded in some category, mm-hmm. um, just because there are a lot of people who still are really into that movie, even yeah. though other people, myself 
included, and I think you too have yeah. soured on it. Um, but I think they the the HFPA gave Colin Farrell an acting award yep. for a previous for In Bruges, another yeah. Martin McDonough movie. They seem on his wavelength. He's a he's a Irish guy. Lives well, in and London, Three Awards you know? is a very attention grabbing screenplay. Like it's got exactly. it's like kind of like Molly's Game in that way, where it's got like a lot of dialogue. It's got a lot of like really um, kind of showy word sequences, which I think works in a lot of places in the script, and then for me doesn't work as well. But. And it's a foreigner grappling. I, we, clumsily yeah. <laughs> with uh, various American societal ills, yeah, and the HFPA probably is also grappling with those. I mean, you know, they're non-Americans trying to make sense of America, right? Yeah, uh, and so maybe there's some, you know, sort of camaraderie there. But like I said in the little write-up for the category, the HFPA has given Aaron Sorkin a sc- screenplay award twice mm. in the last seven, eight years. Mm. Uh, so we shouldn't count him out for Molly's Game, although I would be surprised if that happened but but you know again they like him it's interesting thinking about molly's game because we've been talking about the adapted screenplay category at the oscars how it's basically call me by your name and nothing else but molly's game is in there too that's right so there might be some sense of competition there yeah i mean i don't think that for whatever reason molly's game which i think is a really actually a great movie uh and really fun it maybe came out a little too late like Mm -hmm. i feel like it's not it's not quite as in the mix as it maybe once. I feel like it's the, this, it's the same problem that we've had like all year is that all these movies keep getting trampled over by crazy news in real life. Like it's either more sexual harassment stuff or more Trump stuff or like nuclear war. Or God knows what else is going to happen to us. Uh, it's it's a weird year to have awards, but I don't buy into the whole narrative that I keep. Like, I don't know if anyone in the industry is actually saying it. The idea of like, why are we even having awards? Like, how can you even have an award show in an environment like this? Like that doesn't that argument doesn't make sense to me. I think you get to have an award show. You get to give awards to Meryl Streep or. Greta Gerwig or Saoirse Ronan and like celebrate these people who are making who are keeping your art form alive when all of these terrible men were doing their best to sink it and use it to their own ill gains no I agree and I think also this year in particular you know uh, with a few exceptions like there are so many good worthy movies that are smaller and are worth the attention and I don't you know look d- d- is is your average Golden Globe viewer somebody who hasn't seen these movies yet probably not at this yeah. point I mean you know the, the audience for this stuff is becoming more niche but um, but any little bit of attention that a smaller movie can get you know and any opportunity that uh we have to sort of publicly praise a movie like get out or come by your name or or whatever it or is you know, or the or the post even you know um i think is 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 is, is valuable i mean you know look this is all extraneous i mean we don't ne- we don't need any of this to survive yes yeah. that's true I mean, we, but we like, do personally well, yes but like you know look it enhances the experience of being alive so why not why not enjoy it so now we're going to share the conversation that I had with Dee Reese, who is the writer and director of Mudbound. It is a very large, sprawling family epic that's currently available on Netflix. It's seeable everywhere. Richard, you've seen it as well. It's a uh, it's kind of a remarkable example of a novelistic movie where it kind of captures so many different characters over this kind of like wide swath of a story. It's a true epic. It's a rare thing that is, like you said, available to everybody. And people should go watch it and they should listen to you speak with this really exciting director who yeah. is finally getting some more mainstream attention. Yeah, I think she's the kind of director or filmmaker who you talk to and just gives like really well thought out answers to everything, which is exciting when you just know someone who like puts that much passion into their work, which everyone should do. But it, it rarely comes across as well in conversation as it does with Dee Reese. So uh, take a listen. In the kind of the award season process, this film has won a lot of ensemble prizes, which is perfect because it's, you know, the definition of ensemble film. But when it comes to individual actors, Mary J. Blige has kind of been the one who's been singled out repeatedly, which is wonderful because she's great in it. But is there ever like a um, like a bittersweetness for you where it's like, well, everyone can't get singled out like that there it comes down to one or two actors, whereas the entire ensemble is what makes it work? Yeah, I think all these actors were so generous with each other. In order to have an ensemble, that means like they're like sharing moments or we're figuring out, okay, whose scene is this? And so 
a lot of these actors have given their like career best performance. Like Jason Mitchell, like I'm saying, is fucking amazing. And same thing with Garrett Hedlund. And in a perfect world, they'd all be getting supporting actor nods. You know, like that was the whole big thing. Like they're basically going to be competing with each other. So yeah, I there's do no and, and, like Rob. Yeah, and, like Rob Morgan is half. Like Rob is stunning as half, and like he's given like this nobility. And he's played this sharecropper we've never seen before, this reading sharecropper, this, like, dignified sharecropper, this, like, guy with agency. And, like, it's a shame, like, he hasn't gotten more notice. I think Mary deserves every last drop, every last paragraph that's been written about her because she's brilliant. And I think that Carrie Mulligan and the guys also deserve notice. To me, is telling about kind of, like, the process that, you know, maybe critics feel they can only pick one or people feel like they can only talk about one, but the narrative, I mean, each of these actors individually should be getting recognized, not just as an ensemble, you know, yeah. it's like as a director, it's like trying to like pick a kid, like they're all fucking great. Like, <laughs> I was really interested to read what you said about how you rehearse with your actors and you really weren't running lines. You were doing almost therapy sessions. And especially when you had Carrie Mulligan and Mary J. Blige, uh, I think you said you sat them together and just told each other back and forth. You have the power, you have the power. Can you talk about why that was yeah. the way that you wanted to build those characters and get those actors working together? Yeah, so I wanted to work that way because I like to get to the core of it and the subtext. Like, I want to get to the why you're saying what you're saying. Because to me, if the actors believe and understand the why or they have, like, a worldview, then everything else feels organic and feels natural. And so for me, getting into Laura versus Florence, like, that was about power to me where each woman believes the other has power over her. And it's true in a way, like, even though kind of like the compassion that begins is like transactional, you know, like in the beginning, Laura is kind of like accepting a Florence because she's getting what she needs from her. And then it maybe grows into some kind of like authentic, like compassion or empathy, but it's still got that edge of like, you know, I'm getting something out of it. Like I'm helping your husband's broken leg because I need you to come back and help my kids. But like, I just thought that that, for Laura, she feels that Florence has the power because Florence is able to heal. Florence is the difference between like life and death. Like Florence has like know-how and capability that she doesn't have. And even though Florence doesn't necessarily have a choice on whether to participate in that transaction, Florence still has a power like in her know-how. And then for Florence, like Laura obviously has a power. She's a power of her whiteness in a way. She's a power of her status. You know, she could make things difficult for Florence or she could make life easy for Florence. But that's kind of like balanced by the fact that Laura like needs something out of her. So I just wanted to kind of have the two women kind of bounce that thought off each other. You have the power. No, you have the power to put them like in the worldview and like in like the mindset of Lauren Florence. And like to me, like that was the core of that relationship. So if every interaction then is about this kind of like bartering of power, then it kind of like informs the lines and we get the tension that's underneath there. Yeah, I think when we especially try to tell stories about the past, we try to think of it in terms of the Klansmen and then uh, like the good white people or like kind of let the myth of that exist. And it seems like in this movie, you're like, you're Mm -hmm. really trying to tear that down as much as possible. And to recognize that these people were living in such close quarters, were so dependent on each other, but didn't like there's such a huge gray area between the clan and everybody else who was there. I mean, is is that part of your writing process? Is that there from the beginning? I mean, it seems pretty essential to how the movie works. Yeah, for me, it had to be layered. It couldn't be like the bad, evil clansmen and then the good, respectable white people. For me, it's about layers. Like everybody's participating in this system of oppression. Everybody's participating in racism, but in different ways. And one, you know, isn't 
necessarily more dangerous than another. So, you know, Henry's not calling names or making Rondell go out the back door, but he is participating in like commerce and saying, okay, come go into debt. And then like with Jamie, by pretending he doesn't see it or by, by saying, come sit by me, he's not kind of attending to like the, the dangerous realities of that. Like Ronzel, he's not, he's not understanding like, Oh, I could be signing your death warrant by imposing this closeness. And so, you know, they're, they're each participating in racism. They, they, they all have currency and seems like that was the, the nuanced way to think about it. It's like currency that all these characters have. It's just that they spend it differently. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's some obvious things like Pappy and the clan. That's like a flaunting is in your face, you know, call your name, go out the back door. But then there are the subtle gradations that are equally hurtful. Like it's Laura's like lack of imagination. Like when she asked Florence to come work for her, she can't imagine that Florence has anything better to do. She can't imagine that why this wouldn't be a good deal for Florence and that Florence could be like in danger, like in her house. I think by making it more layered, everyone's participating, everyone's racist in the film, you know, it's just manifest in different ways and the different forms are equally dangerous or hurtful for the Jackson family. Rachel Morrison's cinematography has been really uh, justly celebrated in this film. And I thought it was interesting that you talked about not just how, you know, it's beautiful and capturing these landscapes, but that it's filmed differently depending on whose perspective we're seeing, especially the way that the land is filmed. And can you talk about like just Mm -hmm. alone keeping track of that and like knowing whose perspective you're in when Mm -hmm. you're operating the crane and why like, and how you managed to get that to come across? It's just a way of kind of like trying to think about the characterizations and think about how people see the landscape. And again, like getting into like worldview, basically, like how can we inform Hap's worldview through the photography versus like, you know, Henry's. And even when Hap has his moment where he has the monologue about, you know, deeds and wanting to own land, like this kind of like sunsetty, streaky thing, there's still an element of like unreachableness, like of impossibility to that. It's like this impossible beauty that like it's impossible to have. So Henry is one of the few characters that we shoot against a lot of green, you know, so we get that for him, the land is beautiful, the land is verdant, you know, the land is rich, there's a possibility. And with Hap and the Jacksons, we mainly shoot them against brown. So like the land becomes utility. It's like no matter how much you invest, it's like hard, it's unforgiving not reciprocal, you know, in the same way. Mm-hmm. And um, so those were, you know, two examples where we see these guys have very different relationships like, to the land and how it looks around them. And with Laura, it's always about the dirt. It's always about the encroachment. And she's always trying to beat the dust out the door. And with Florence, she's more shot in the interiors. When we do see her going out, you know, so like the unknown. There's this amazing shot where uh, as as Laura and Florence are kind of building their relationship, I think Laura has just suffered a miscarriage and she's kind of clinging to Florence for help. And you see this just look on Florence's face where she's kind of removing herself from the situation and is kind of like aware of mm-hmm. the burden that's being placed on her. And it feels, I, I, I don't remember mm-hmm. if it's totally silent, but I remember it being silent. Um, can you talk about that that scene, like why that was such a fulcrum point and like what, where that came from for you, either in the writing or shooting the film? Yeah, totally. No, that's something I really like worked on like in the blocking because um, Mary's impulse was to like bend down to hold her, sit beside her. And it had to be this distance. You know, Laura doesn't touch her until Florence shares. I lost the son too. So that moment of touch, I was playing with that moment of touch is visceral, like this white hand touching the black arm, like Laura, like reaching for her, you know. And so that's my thing, like Laura has to reach for you, like don't reach for her. She has to reach for you first. And then even when you're comforting her, like hold your health self up and look away. So it's like both giving Laura privacy and it's both, although you guys have experienced similar things, it's like keeping your pain separate from her pain. And like Florence is very sober about the fact 
that just because they're having a moment, it doesn't mean that Laura is ever going to think of her truly as an mm-hmm. equal. There's danger and over from familiarity, and that's where that's how you die is when you become too close or when you assume too much. And so, I really blocked her. It's like no, like even though you're holding her, so it's like oh, like awkward because your impulse is to lean down, or it's like no, like don't don't lean down with her. Like let her be coming be coming to you. And in that moment, you're holding yourself away because at any moment this woman could say that you've embarrassed her, you know, or you've shamed her or something, and then you're in trouble. So it's like this kind of moment of, like, respectful kind of distance or empathy where she's feeling about her kid. And in that moment, you know, like, Laura's not crying for your child, you know, but you feel for hers. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a really important moment. And yeah. and it's, it looks great, but every shot in the movie looks great. So that's not necessarily Thanks. a surprise. I read something that referenced Mary J. Blige as going somewhat reluctantly without any makeup in this film. Did, is that true? Is that kind of a, was that their deglamming process where you're taking a gigantic star and putting her on this farm in Louisiana? Yeah, and I'm sure she was scared, but she went there, you know, like the first day I think of her like, was with Carrie. I'm sure there's like some trepidation and no nails, no lashes. She actually does have makeup. It's just like very down makeup. It's not that there's nothing, but it's like a non-flattering style. You I'm know? sure Mary J. Blige has much like, better oh, like skin care than Florence Jackson would have. Like there are things that are just she is she is better cared for exactly, in general. Exactly. Yeah, but I was back there, yeah, in terms of like nutrition, like what are you eating every day? And like how does that affect like complexion, you know? So yeah. So and I think like the wig was like a huge deal, you know, just like letting everything be natural. And Mary like went along with it. A lot of stars wouldn't have. They would have said, yeah, I hear you, but I'm going to bring my personal wig maker on. You won't know the difference. But Mary was really brave in that way because she's kind of casting aside, I think, what what her fans might expect or what her fans might think and really allowing herself to sink into character. And even like some people think, oh, the glasses are like a vanity thing. I'm like, no, that was like a character style. And like, this is based on an image of a sharecropping woman that I had and like wanted to, to um, put her in. And Michael Boyd, you know, has this reference photo, this sharecropping woman with these dark glasses holding a baby. And the glasses become part of the characterization. Like Florence is like unknowable. She presents this very kind of reserved exterior, but she's deeply vulnerable, deeply empathetic and, and seeing everything inside. And so I just wanted all that to kind of play into who she was and, and kind of like how she kind of navigated the world. Thank you so much. I really like talking to you. I really kind of want to get into like every single shot at a certain point, like when you start talking in that much detail. Yeah. So thanks for indulging me. We'll do shot by shot. That'll be great. <laughs> just do the, just do the commentary track. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. So that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you for listening. And please find us on the iTunes store. Leave us a review. Rate us. Tell people about it. It is such a fun time to talk about awards. And we want more people to join the conversation. Uh, Next week, we'll be talking about what happens on the Golden Globes. We'll have uh, Mike and Joanna back in the fold. There'll be a lot to discuss. Award season will truly be back in the frenzy period. In the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com with our full list of Golden Globe predictions and a lot else. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Uh, Rylaws. And you can find Mike and Joanna in the usual places. Although, did we change Mike's uh, Twitter handle to Mike Greatest Showman, something like that? <laughs> I feel like, yeah, we, we were going to, but now that joke has passed, so we have to come up with something else. <laughs> something 2018-ish. And this week's award for the real reason that Mike and Joanna are in Los Angeles goes to Richard Lawson. They look like fucking movie stars. <laughs> this episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. <laughs>